I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a brilliant documentary, and I talk about Paul's exhortations in Romans 12. So I'm standing here in my kitchen looking out on an absolutely frigid mid-February day in West Michigan. On my walk this morning, it was six degrees. And uh, the real feel, the the weather app on my phone said that it, you know, the real feel was one degree. And that's about how it felt. It's uh it's freezing here. I've got walking around my feet, uh, George Clooney and Freddie Mercury, my uh, constant companions and my conversation partners throughout the day. Um that's mostly one way. Mostly. Mostly one way. Uh, coming off a fun weekend, watched uh, loads of golf. The WM Championship is being played in uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale area this past weekend. And it's so great to see images of green and sunshine in the, the mountains in Phoenix. And just like it was cool to see all the, the warm scenes around Los Angeles where the Super Bowl is being played. Um. I'm looking forward in a couple of weeks getting out to Phoenix to experience that warmth myself. This time of year, every year here in West Michigan, I'm just, I get done with winter. I'm sick of being cold all the time, heading outside. And, you know, if I have to run to the store, it takes forever for the car to warm up. I love winter. I love the scenes of it, uh, but I could use it being a bit shorter. Really enjoyed watching the golf Saturday and Sunday. Spent plenty of time on the couch, snacking, and uh, enjoying a really good tournament. Um, enjoyed watching the Super Bowl yesterday. It's a good game. Interestingly enough, uh, great playoff games and a, and a really good competitive Super Bowl. It's a really satisfying end uh, to the NFL season. Um, it was fun to watch the game. and text with uh, Steve and Don throughout it, which is pretty normal. Um, enjoyed the game and enjoyed all the playoffs and all of that just because I enjoy competition and sports. Uh, but I feel like I always need to register my conflicted, my, my conflict over watching football and, um, you know, entities making millions and billions of dollars on the destruction of young men's bodies. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. I have to deal with the world as it is, not as I wish it would be. Um, the coming season is one of my favorite times of year in the lead up to the Masters tournament and opening day for baseball. And it's tremendously frustrating that the baseball lockout continues. And as I said, I'm heading out west. And in the past, I've so enjoyed going to spring training games, uh, looking forward to the baseball season. And that's just not going to be happening this year. Um, I mean, come on, baseball, figure it out. Really frustrating. Uh, the golf will go on, which is great. And in less than two months, the Masters tournament will be on when uh, life for me comes to a halt. And I pay attention to what really matters. Uh, I finished Succession Season 3, which is all that's released, waiting for Season 4. And um, 
I'm not saying that to recommend it necessarily. Uh, that's just kind of what I've been wrapped up into the last couple of weeks. And uh, my goodness, there are nothing but awful characters on that show. It's terrible. And I have to say, I think it affected my dream life. Anxious, conflicted dreams. Now that I'm done watching it, I'll probably sleep a whole lot better. Uh, the person to whom I'm related by marriage, who is a marketing genius, suggested that I mention this, so I thought that I would. I got an email from Chris, who's a pastor, and he told me that uh, he and his elders are going to be reading through my book, Power and Weakness, which uh, made me really happy. I love how that book turned out. Um, I've written a few things, and I think that that is going to end up being my favorite book that I have done. It's sort of everything I know about uh, pastoral ministry and so much of what I think about um, what I think is going on in Paul's theology, sort of all in one place. And um, it's a short book, which means that that's sort of the, the limits of my knowledge. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm so happy that he's doing that. So I mentioned this to my spouse and she said, uh, well, did you offer to zoom in and have a conversation with them about it? They probably would love that. And I just, I said, no, that, that sounds to me presumptuous. I don't, I, I, I have a high allergy with regard to self-promotion. I just, I rubs me wrongly. So I'm, I just, I have a hard time doing that sort of thing. Um, but I mentioned that to Chris and he said, uh, that that sounded like a great idea. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. And, uh, so I thought I would mention that for anybody who's in church leadership, if you're a pastor or uh, you have a leadership team, um, I think it'd be a great idea to read through together and discuss my book, Power in Weakness. And I would love uh, to do some kind of a remote discussion, um, kick stuff around. Those ideas, uh, for me, the ideas I put in that book are foundational and uh, form so much of what I think about being Christian. And I would just and the life of the church. And I'd love to talk about it. And I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts. So anyway, I'll just throw that offer out there. That would be a blast. Uh, I just had, well, I had a number of sort of follow-up thoughts from what I talked about in last week's episode about being Christian and staying Christian. And uh, just to say, this is something that I think about all the time. I'm always returning to sort of the basics of what it means to be Christian. And this is why um, I spent uh, so many episodes some time ago talking about Christian identity, uh, not the white supremacist cult out West somewhere in the mountains, um, but just thinking about what it means to be Christian, our identities as Christian people, as the church. And, um, because it seems to me that we so easily and often get away from that. We sort of drift away and we relate to one another or we think about our lives or we uh, face challenges or opportunities uh, with, with, with some other identity. We get, we get confused about who we are. And I saw this in a pretty dramatic way over the last five, six, seven years or whatever, uh, leading up to the last uh, couple elections. And or I wrote a number of reflections on Facebook, on my blog, uh, just thinking about who we are, what is what it means to be Christian. And um, this is something that I return to, as I said, 
all the time. And it seems to me that we're offered sort of a, a range of hopeful and compelling and life-giving identities in the New Testament. And they all interrelate. They're, all, they're, they're sort of like metaphors uh, that bring us into this, um, this liberating reality of being uh, human in God's good world. And uh, they're all sort of pictures and um, depictions and portrayals of who we are. And they're all life-giving. And they're all meant to be starting points from which our imaginations can expand and we can sort of, you know, start there and then work our way outward um, so that we think, so that we can think fruitfully and hopefully and compellingly and life-givingly um, about anything and everything. Uh, you know, for example, um, if I think about my identity as gift recipient, you know, in James, uh, James talks about in James's letter, James one, he talks about God as giver of all good gifts. Well, that makes me gift recipient. So if I am a gift recipient, um, you know, what does that mean for how I conduct myself as a parent? What does that mean for how I conduct myself as a neighbor, as someone that anyone might encounter in the grocery store or whatever? Um, if I if I stand, you know squarely in that identity and look at all the aspects of my life as a person who is a gift recipient, um, that makes me look out on opportunities and challenges in a very, very different way than I otherwise might have. And um, I just use that as an example, gift recipient, um, because that's been really, really useful for me, especially because... Um, my attention when, I, when I'm sort of not being as attentive to my thinking and my thought processes as I otherwise might be, my attention sort of drifts so that I look at my life through a lens of lack. I think about what I don't have. I think about what's missing in me. I think about what's missing in my life, you know, when I'm not paying attention to where my attention is going. And um, I can sort of look at my life narrative from a perspective of deprivation, what's been taken from me or what I don't have, that sort of thing. And that identity or that lens um, determines how I speak to people, how I, how I behave, how I, how I look to the future, how I look at my past, how I think about my parents, how I think about my kids, everything. Um, so it's been really useful for me to pick up that lens and sort of step into that um, character called gift recipient because it makes me look at everything differently. It makes me look at uh, my relationships with my th my three children and to see all the richness that's there. And it makes me look at them as gifts to me. I'm receiving them as gifts. Um, I, I get to open them up and discover them and, and uh, I get to wonder at all that they are instead of uh, think about how they could be in better places in their lives or further along the line of maturity or whatever. I just don't ever think in those terms. I'm always thinking about um, the the richness. And uh, that, for me, it has to be sort of an active, intentional sort of an activity because my mind drifts. It, it's sort of my tension. I, I'm, I'm not always as careful in thinking as I should be. And I can, I can begin to think about what's missing in me or what's missing in my life or what's missing in others or what others are not providing for me. Um, so anyway, that's just to say, um, this has to be 
an intentional, you know, lifelong sort of an endeavor. Um, because we can often assume identities and then think from those identities that are inappropriate or that are going to lead us into cul-de-sacs, relational cul-de-sacs or dead ends. And they're not going to lead us and leave us in hopeful places so that we see, um, so that we can really enjoy all the, the richness in relationships that we could. Um, so anyway, that last week was just sort of an exercise in thinking from a number of identities when it comes to uh, relating with certain kinds of people that we get to relate to. Um, so I, we often think while inhabiting the wrong identities, and not only that, but it seems to me that Christians can often start their thinking in the wrong places. Uh, for example, when I think about just people in my neighborhood here, when I think about people who are not Christian, it seems to me I was taught to think from the starting point of hell. So when I'm thinking about people in my life who are not Christian, I'm always having to think about the fact that they're going to hell. Um, that set me up to relate to people so badly and so wrongly and so horribly. And it led me to a place where I was thinking of myself so horribly and so wrongly. Um, we have to start in the right places so that we can be in places where uh, we are going to really behave toward other people as if we were Christians and not as if we were some other kind of person. And when it comes to uh, thinking about and relating with people who identify as LBGTQ+, um, rather than starting immediately by thinking about sex or immediately by thinking about four or five New Testament passages, it just seems to me that as far as where we start from, not only what identity we inhabit, um, we have to start in the right place. And to my mind, that means beginning in the place where we are Christian and um, where we think of ourselves rightly. Um, being Christian and the gospel, I'm convinced, is a hopeful reality. And if being Christian leaves us in places where we're not hopeful or free or liberated, um, there's something wrong with how we are thinking about ourselves, and there's something wrong with the starting point for our thinking, it seems to me anyway. Of course, there are hundreds more things to be said, um, but those things seem to be at least worth saying. I want to tell you about a documentary film. I normally talk about a book in this space, but I've been having some conversations about Billy Graham recently, so I thought I'd recommend an excellent documentary on his life and career. It's simply called Billy Graham, and you can find it on the PBS website. I'm constantly struck by the place that Billy Graham occupies in the public imagination, and more specifically, the way that he's been elevated to patron saint status within evangelicalism. This is, in many ways, understandable. He played a massive role in, in the development of evangelicalism throughout the 20th century, and in the last quarter of his life, he conducted himself as a sort of elder statesman, a staid, pacifying, and uncontroversial figure. It seems to me, however, 
that his public profile is largely the result of excellent public relations work on the part of entities like Christianity Today, a magazine that he helped to launch, and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. But I think it's important to critically reflect on his life, his work, and his influence, because I think it's vital to think critically about being Christian. And this is especially the case for my inherited culture of evangelicalism, in which self-criticism is so unwelcome. It seems to me that the pathologies that affect American evangelicalism can be seen in focus form in his public career. Billy Graham stands in a long line of revival preachers whose public career was disconnected from the church. He preached an individualistic gospel focused on getting people saved. His gospel solved the problem of individual lack of meaning, offering personal fulfillment. The church as the kingdom of God, the location of new creation life on earth, and the social entity that enacts God's public and social justice played no role in his vision. The hope of America and the world was getting individuals connected to God. And I think that because of this, his work contributed to the weakening of the church. Graham's work also reflected and reinforced Christian nationalism. He admitted this himself noting that one of his regrets was that he too often had equated America with the kingdom of God. His aim in much of his preaching was to bring revival to the nation through individual conversion. God would guarantee America prosperity and protection from threats when more individuals would give their lives to God. Evangelicalism in America has a confused and idolatrous conception of the relationship of the God of Christian scripture and the nation. And Graham both reflected this and helped to reinforce it. He also had a problematic relationship with political figures and a hunger for political influence. The documentary does an excellent job of portraying this. Graham cozied up to political figures and sought to influence policy, but he was also used by politicians who knew that being seen with Graham would win them evangelical votes. After being burned by Richard Nixon, Graham vowed never to get close to politicians again, though he couldn't resist the lure of national politics. And Graham had the same problematic record on race as does evangelicalism and its institutions. While he had a relationship with Martin Luther King Jr., he failed to be a courageous public advocate, urging civil rights leaders to be patient. I found this documentary to be a fascinating portrayal of a more complex figure than is often recognized. Some of the historians from whom I've learned quite a lot make appearances, including Anthea Butler, Kevin Cruz, and Randall Balmer. I've recommended their work on previous episodes. For a critical and even-handed assessment of the life and work of Billy Graham, check out this wonderful documentary. It's called Billy Graham, and you can find it by searching for it on the PBS website. <laughs> So Romans 12, after Paul uh, went on this uh, long digression in chapters 9 through 11, uh, he turns now to make some very practical and targeted exhortations informing the Roman, uh, the network of Roman house churches, how to be the kingdom of God, how to be this new creation community, how to inhabit this new cosmic location called in Christ, or uh, what he calls in chapter 5, this grace. And uh, that this gift, uh, the, this new cosmic location that they all together inhabit. So chapter 12 is very, very practical. 
Um, I'm not a crazy fan about, um, you know, labeling different sections of, of, of Paul's letters, uh, you know, the indicative or the imperative, or, you know, people divide uh, Ephesians in half. Chapters one to three is all sort of theological. Chapters four to six is really practical. Um, those are not, those are in, in some senses distinctions that do some work. Uh, but I think that they sometimes leave us in a place where we, um, I don't know, we impose modern categories on the way that Paul thought or addressed his audiences that that don't do full justice to the fact that Paul sometimes stops and makes uh, exhortations in passages that are a bit more theological, or there's theological there are theological realities in some of the sections that we label practical. Um, but there's no getting around the fact that Romans 12 is very, very practical, very, very targeted, uh, where he now turns to tell this network of small communities how to live, how to inhabit this whole reality that God has brought them into. And it, it's it's very practical. Um, that is, it has to do with their practice as community and as communities. Uh, some years ago, we as a family... Um, you know, printed out Romans 12, and we made a, a project of memorizing this chapter together uh, because in some senses we were, I mean, we are still, but our children are far flung from us. Um, and we have a new set of children, George and Freddie, who show no interest in memorizing Romans 12, but there you go. But we were sort of a, a micro community and we wanted to improve the way that we thought about each other and spoke to one another. And we wanted to inhabit the joy of just being, you know, belonging to one another. So we, we memorized this and um, it, it made for a great starting points in conversation about how we would treat one another. And um, it made for some material that we could call on in addressing uh, different sorts of things as our children grew up under our watch. Um, but very practical stuff. And as I've said at a number of points in talking about Romans, uh, I think it is absolutely pivotal, at least this is the way that I approach the letter, I think it's pivotal to keep at the forefront of our minds constantly the actual concrete situation that Paul is addressing. He says these things to that community or that network of small communities um, that are going through that specific problem. The central problem that he is addressing is he's trying to bring together uh, these two factions in the network of Roman house churches that are passing judgment on one another or that are in some kind of conflict with each other. So these are things that are targeted to that situation. Got to keep that in mind uh, because when he says what he says, he is addressing that reality. So. Um, I'm working from my translation. This is not necessarily reflected in the um, the translation that I've sent to a bunch of folks that, that have asked for it in the manuscript that I have. Uh, that's the New American Standard Bible translation with some edits that I've made uh, over the years, some, some changes that I've made to that based on um, my uh, working through the Greek text. But this is a, a more of a working translation that I am working with, and that'll be reflected at a number of points. 
So Paul begins this discussion by saying, I exhort you then, brothers and sisters, by the compassions of God or by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's so critical. Bodies, sacrifice. Um, It's important that we get that right to my mind, because this is something that Paul is exhorting uh, them all as a, as, as a collective bunch. Everybody in the network of Roman house churches together is a singular sacrifice. It's not that I do this on my own and you do this on your own and somebody else does this on their own. Uh, this is something that the, the community does together. This is how they, this is yet another image uh through which they understand their their identities and who they are, who they are together. They are together a single sacrifice. And that's important because they are currently at odds and they're currently divided. And they are not necessarily a a sacrifice that is holy, that is acceptable to God in their divided state. That is huge. So they together as a church— present themselves as a singular sacrifice. This is something that they they do together. This is one of the points where our individualistic mindset really hurts us. Uh, we're not just a, a collection of individuals. Um, we don't just each do this and make sure that we do this and then come together. Um, this is something that the church together uh, does as a uh, a corporate endeavor. So they present their bodies a living sacrifice and, of course, uh, holy, acceptable to God. And their holiness here is not uh, some kind of post-Victorian notion of moral purity. Uh, Holiness is difference, distinction, set-apartness. So this is a community that is supposed to be utterly unlike any other kind of community where people gather based on uh, shared interests or people gather based on similar socioeconomic status or ethnicity or race or social location or whatever. Um, This community is gathered by God and he puts together a community of people who are different, different ethnicities, uh, different genders, different social locations. And it's the kind of community that is put together that has no other kind of social precedent. It doesn't look like any other bunch of people. Um, when this community gathers, it raises questions as to why it is together. So the fact, that's, that is the whole point. So the fact that they are breaking down um, about differences with regard to how they conceive of being Christian, the strong and the weak in the network of Roman house churches, is making them an unholy people. They are, they are, they're becoming um, communities that look just like the world, that uh, where people gather because they have shared convictions or they, um, you know, sort of a shared vision that you could sort of plot, um, you know, in, in earthly terms. Anyway, uh, it's just very, very interesting that this is all sort of temple language and that temple language continues. And here's how I've translated that last clause uh, of verse 1, presenting their bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Uh, I don't have, I I didn't translate this as like, you know, which is your reasonable act of worship or something like that. Um, I translated it this way. The sort of temple service 
that is consistent with this whole reality. So uh, Paul picks up this this whole image of temple service, which uh, he has talked about throughout Romans in chapter one, the whole uh, one eighteen to thirty two, where he talked about um, how the human had sort of surrendered or changed or altered the image of God. You know, the human had become subhuman uh, in God's cosmic temple, which is his whole creation. The image of God within the, the temple has been corrupted or marred or distorted. And that because the human has become in the image of something else. And so what's happening here is in 12.1, this is the reversal of that whole process, the, the reversal of that condition. And in salvation, God has restored the human to what the human ought to be. That is uh, image of God. Um, Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human fully alive. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And um, that the kind of temple service that Paul is calling the community to uh, will be consistent with that whole reality that Paul has talked about in chapters 1 through 11, and really in chapters 1 through 8. But um, yeah, chapters 9 through 11 are not sort of out of view in this whole scenario. But the term translated reasonable um, in the final part of verse 1 is the Greek term logikos. And it doesn't mean, you know, merely cognitive or rational or reasonable necessarily. Uh, the way that I understand it is that it's sort of um, a metaphorical, uh, I, I understand it in sort of metaphorical terms of something that makes sense given a larger reality. That is something that uh, is reasonable or logical in terms that flow from something else. And um, <clears throat> the something else is the whole reality that Paul has talked about up until this point. And I, I translate um, you know, service as temple service because that is the Greek term. Um, and it's, it is, uh, it's, it's a, the Greek term that sort of indicates priestly service which calls upon a rich theological scenario that stretches all the way back to uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, in various places in the Old Testament, uh, what Adam and Eve are depicted as doing in the garden is they're doing priestly service on behalf of God. That is, they are um, in the garden, there's some sort of unique presence of God there. There are sort of uh, you know, resource, you know, uh, divine resources in some sense and the garden is depicted as sort of a, a you know, kind of a temple. Um, and what they are to do as priests overseeing creation is they are to sort of get resources from the garden and um, bring order and flourishing to the rest of creation. Because the rest of creation outside of the garden is not yet ordered. It is not yet space that's flourishing. It's just, there's just, it's just not ordered space. That's at least the depiction of what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, that's how uh, Genesis sort of depicts being human in God's good world. And uh, in Genesis 12, or sorry, in, uh, in Romans 12, 1, uh, that situation is being restored. So um, that's what's happening there in, in verse 1. The temple service that is consistent with this whole reality. So um, 
again, that sort of gets at how it is that salvation is the restoration of the image of God in humanity. And um, this is how we occupy that new space called Christ, in Christ, or this grace. All right, Paul continues in uh, verse 2. He says, Do not form yourselves or do not conform to this age, but rather be transformed by the renewal of the mind in order for you to discern the will of God, what is good uh, and acceptable and and complete or mature or perfect or whatever. Um, so reading this in context of what's happening there in the Roman ho- uh, house churches, to be, for- to be formed according to this age is to establish hierarchies. To be formed according to this age is to be divided. It's to quarrel and... Uh, compete with the other group for ascendancy, uh, to sort of have group loyalty, to be loyal to the weak or to be loyal to the strong, to be loyal to my crowd or our cause or our denomination or whatever, our clique, and to divide uh, from others and separate from others and imagine that we are God's favorites and y'all are not. That is what it means to be formed according to this age, this present evil age. That is what it means to be an unholy people. And on the other hand, um, or or I should say, this is really critical, um, that term, this age, is not, you know, the world. Do not be conformed to the world. Um, What Paul's getting at here is this age and all of its ideologies, all of its seductions uh, to being part of the in crowd or its, its seductions and its lures um, into thinking that you could be part of the uh, the ones that know and divide off from the ones that don't know. All of the ways that uh, human life is ruined, all the ideologies that foster all of that, all the judgment passing um, that fuels that kind of um, behavior, that's that's what Paul is getting at when he uses that term, this age. All of the ideologies and ways of thinking about ourselves and others and what matters and who to be afraid of um, that fuel divisions between humans and that prevent us all from enjoying um, a mode of life characterized by God's shalom. Uh, On the other hand, to have renewed minds would be to grasp what God is doing among them. He is unifying them as a singular body. He's bringing them together so that they are a group of people that offer one another and enjoy together hospitality, God's hospitality. And uh, he calls them to discern what the will of God is. This is not the will, the will of God for your individual life or anything like that, which is a notion not found in Scripture, in my opinion. Um, but they are to discern the will of God, which involves being a unified community. And they have to negotiate together and discuss together what that's going to look like and how they're going to practice it. Um, but Paul is letting them know that who they are is a community of hospitality. They're a community of justice doing. They're a community that fully inhabits new and renewed cosmic space. And uh, God's will involves figuring out together in discussion what that's going to look like in the 50s in Rome. That is up to them. Um, The broad outline, the blueprint is clear, but what they're what that's going to look like and how they're going to actually do that in concrete communal behaviors on the ground is going to be um, 
up for discussion. And uh, what's really interesting is this this whole notion of uh, discerning what the will of God is, is Paul picking up a term that he used in uh, 128, that is in the uh, the degradation of humanity as he narrates that in chapter 1. Uh, in verse 28, he talks about them having unfit minds. And um, it's interesting that that term shows up again in chapter 5, verse 4. Um, the process of perseverance that Paul talks about, uh, where he talks about how perseverance works fitness. Uh, that's often translated as character, which sort of gets at it, but it's the same term that's used in 128. Um, human degradation, degradation brought about um, unfitness of mind so that humans were just sort of processing wrongly and thinking wrongly and discerning reality wrongly, uh, understanding themselves wrongly and their place in the world. And um, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance works in them fitness of mind. And uh, those are all the same terms. And so here they are supposed to work their fit minds, their renewed minds to discern how to make a way forward together as a community. And that is going to involve discussion and thinking about it and talking about it and listening and seeing to it that everybody involved in the community or everybody that is an essential part of the community experiences flourishing together. Because one of the realities of new creation space is there is not a zero sum logic. It is not the case that for some people to flourish, other people have to take a back seat. Or for some people to sort of win, other people need to lose. The reality of resurrection space, the reality of new creation space is that there's more here than we need. There's more than enough to go around. And uh, when they work together and discuss how that is all going to look, every member can fully enjoy the life of God that is among them, and every member can enjoy flourishing. So again, the disagreement that they're having is over how they embody Christian identity, how they embody existence as Christian, and they need to do the work. Um, I could say that alternatively. They get to do the work. This is... This is um, compelling and life-giving work. And um, they get to do the work um, about how they are going to be embodying this in the practices of hospitality and welcome and warm community life across the lines of difference. Paul continues in verse 3, uh, where he says, For I say, by the grace of God that was given to me, referring, of course, to his apostolic commission, I say to everyone who is among you, not to have a too high opinion in relation to what you all to what you ought to think, but to think unto sober judgment. Think in a way that you have sober judgment about yourselves, because to each God has distributed a measure of faithfulness. And again, this is getting at the conflict in the Roman house churches. Neither of the groups is to think arrogantly about themselves in relation to the other group. They should even stop thinking about themselves as groups. They are one group. Paul has already united them all together in condemnation, uh, and he's united them all together in the liberative work of salvation that God has brought them into. And so they're supposed to think soberly about themselves. Again, it all comes back to identity. Who are we when we think about being together as community? That's an important starting point. 
And Paul knows the temptation to sort of estimate oneself and one's group with arrogance and not soberly, not thinking about who we truly are and what is true of us. Uh, I think that in the final part of verse 3, I think the emphasis is on the expression each, as uh, because to each God has distributed a measure of faithfulness. And I think that this goes back to all of the alls throughout Romans, certainly um, chapters 1 to 4, but dotted uh, throughout Romans beyond. But all of the alls, where Paul lumps all of them together, here he is saying, this is true of each of you. God has given to you each of the groups and to every individual faithfulness. Um, it's not that he's given to some greater faith and others lesser faith or anything like that, but he has given this to all of them. They all are participants in what it means to be Christian. And then Paul's going to move on to pick up the body metaphor. And I think it's really important to understand exactly how this is used. And I only say that, excuse me, I only say that because it seems to me that um, this body metaphor has been misused or misdirected. Paul picks this up at a couple of different points in Romans and then in uh, 1 Corinthians, also in Ephesians, but a little bit differently. Uh, Paul talks about the church as body parts. It's one body, and the people that are part of it are body parts, which is a wonderful metaphor to let everybody in the church know that they are all essential. Every single part is essential. You can, uh, if somebody has sort of uh, far less social capital than other parts of the group, they are as essential or non-essential as a finger or an arm or an elbow. Um, you can't just lop one of those off without a significant amount of pain. The body should hurt when one member is affected. That's, um, and every member is absolutely essential to the whole and has a part to play. That's how Paul uses this body metaphor. He does not use the body metaphor to talk about how the church plays some kind of role in the world. Um, I've, I've heard this deployed in this way in so many, so many cases. I probably have used this myself until somewhat recently, where we say things like, you know, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus out there in the world or something like that. Paul does not use the body metaphor to talk about the church's conduct toward outsiders or, to, or toward anybody. And he does not use the body metaphor with regard to service. Um, he uses other metaphors and he, he has other ways of talking. Um, I think that, that that's a misuse of the body metaphor. And I think that that way of using this metaphor um, runs into trouble of offending, stepping across the line of what Paul has to say in verse 3, when he talks about not having a too high opinion um, but to uh, of yourselves, but to think with sober judgment about yourselves. And in, this is my opinion, but I think that using the body metaphor in a way that Paul does not use it, when we talk about you know we being the hands and feet of Jesus, I think there's a subtle move there um, that... Um, makes us imagine that we are in some ways the arbiters of Jesus, or we are sort of um, the people who have the prerogative to dispense a little bit of Jesus out there in the world uh, at will. It, it puts us in a place where we 
um, imagine that we have God and it's our decision whether or not we want to sort of um, do good or not do good. And um, the reason I say that is because in some places, the calculus is reversed. And this is especially true in Mark, where um, Jesus talks about how it is that when the church looks out at outsiders and at people, especially people who have no social capital, um, when the church welcomes and offers hospitality to such people, the church is not being the hands and feet of Jesus. It's not dispensing God or whatever. The church is actually welcoming God into their presence. Uh, whenever you um, receive, you know, whenever you welcome, you know, one of these, and he's referring to children, people that have no social capital in the first century. Whenever you welcome these, you welcome me, and not only me, but the one who sent me. So just to say that the church enjoys the presence of God when the church practices hospitality, and especially hospitality to people that um, our common culture says don't matter. So anyway, just to say the body metaphor um, used in terms of, you know, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus, it, it, it offends that whole notion. It runs opposite to how Jesus and Paul talk about um, practices of service and hospitality. When Paul uses this metaphor, he uses it to talk about the indispensability of every person in the church. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, but the many members do not have the same function. They don't do the same thing. A lot of different body parts, fingers, elbows, femurs, kneecaps, whatever. Thus, we, the many, are one body in Christ. And uh, we, we are members of one another, which is so critical. Uh, one further place right here where Paul talks about how uh, Christian people are united to God and united to one another. We belong uh, to God, we belong to one another, just as an elbow belongs to a shoulder in one human body. That is, um, that is significant, and that is the kind of binding together that is essential. Um, I say all that to say, in an individualized culture, um, we just don't we think about our the role that we play in church uh, so often in terms of being an audience member. Or I could sort of you know, move on to a different church, that sort of thing. Um, but the church mindset about each part, each, each person in the church is to think in terms of being essential. You are part. So that to lose a person is for the body to go through some significant pain. Um, the unity of, of the church in Paul's conception is, um, is absolute. And... Um, there's some, there's some scope here for being creative as far as how we think about being the church. I mean, we, we receive the life of God through the body. It's and just as a, you know, the biological reality applies here to the metaphor, just as my hand receives everything that it needs, you know, through its connection to the wrist and the arm and the rest of the body. That is how people that are part of the church receive the life of God and participate in it through our relationships with one another. Um, I think it's inappropriate to think about our participation in the church as sort of like the fruit of our private and personal and individualized relationship with God. I don't think that that's how Paul would see things. Anyway, I know that that runs against the grain of sort of how 
um, the depiction that I received, but that seems to be uh, how Paul depicts things. Certainly he does in Ephesians and in Colossians, where he talks about the life um, of Christ communicated through all of the joints that hold the body together, the body parts. Um, everybody brings different gifts, and they contribute to the social body in ways that are unique. Paul then moves to talk about some of the some of the possibilities for how uh, body parts can sort of serve the larger social body. And I'm always um, a little bit skeptical when it comes to these spiritual gifts, quote unquote, passages like this one here and the one in First uh, Corinthians 12. There's another briefer one, though, with a, a different thrust in Ephesians 4. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily think that there's an exhaustive list of quote-unquote spiritual gifts. I think that these are just um, ways of serving the social body that Paul is coming up with on the fly and ways that um, people can contribute to the community. I don't think that there's an exhaustive list or a one-time uh, you know, list that determines this forever. It seems to me that Paul is just trying to recognize the diversity in the body and the various ways that people can play roles uh, or do tasks in the social body that serve the whole. So uh, I think that he's basically just saying whatever it is that you you know that that you are doing to sort of enhance community life or foster flourishing in the social body, do that. And every part is essential and is meaningful. I've never been a big fan of these spiritual gift inventories where you sort of take a test and find out what your giftedness is. Uh, it seems to me that um, whatever gift we have to give to the church is determined more by what the what the body needs, what the social body needs, rather than sort of what I'm good at. Um, and there are just so many ways to play roles in the social body, or to to play a part, or to contribute. Um, I I think that in many ways our imaginations are limited, and um, in discerning how it is that we could serve the social body, it, it seems that that is determined over time um, by what the body needs. If it needs a van driver, drive a van, clean up, set up, tear down, whatever. Uh, by and large, those are the things that I really like doing uh, in my community. Um, just practical stuff that needs to be done. Um, I've never thought that just because I'm a teacher that that means that in the church I teach. That may that may happen. It may not, but that may not be what the social body needs. Um, I can play a variety of roles. What matters is my attachment to the body more than sort of my personal fulfillment in um, having this gift and needing some kind of an expression. Um, yeah, I think that that's there are better starting points in thinking about how I contribute to community than thinking in terms of, you know, who am I? What do I have to offer? Then thinking, all right, where's going to be the right community for me to express this properly? That's a very individualistic, modern, Western way of thinking rather than um, thinking about the primacy of the church. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't ever assume that maybe this is just my personal experience, but I, it seems like this is quite common. Um, I don't assume that that we know who we are when we join a social body. Uh, it seems to me that if we are learners and we are sort of coming to know ourselves as we are 
in Christ, um, when we're part of a social body, we begin the process of actually discovering who we are. So I'm not sure that we know in advance what our gifts are or what, or what they're going to be. All of that may be discovered. Uh, we may discover that um, to ourselves over time. We may discover a lot about ourselves over time as we play roles in the social body or as we, when we play a, a part. I'm always skeptical of that term, roles. Anyway, in verses 9 to 13, there's a, a continual list of participles that are all built off the initial statement in verse 9. And that is, um, w- w- what I mean by that is that everything that is said in verses 9 to 13 is built off the initial exhortation that love is to be without hypocrisy, uh, which may be something that is purposely understated. That is, like he's stating it in reverse way. You could also translate it, be truly and fully loving. Love one another with your whole selves, like truly love one another, especially thinking about the two groups that are at odds. And if you were to ask Paul, how do you do that? He would just elaborate uh, on that by listing everything that he has to say in verses 9 to 13 after that initial statement. So he talks about abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. And if we think about the, uh, the concrete situation there in Rome, the evil is the scheming and the plotting that are necessary to have divisions. Um, the assignment of evil, evil motives to that group. Instead, they're to think the best of the other group and to think about um, how the other group is not the other group, but the other group is us. There is no them. There's only us. And they are to have solidarity with one another and to reject um any of the gossip or the slander or the judgment passing that our own group wants to um, enact on the other. In verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in sibling love, leading the way in honor of one another. Um, So they're to be thinking about themselves as siblings in God's one new family. That, as I said, that other group is not an other group. They are our siblings. And they are to be uh, active and be striving to give honor, to attribute honor to one another, uh, which is a complete reversal of Roman values. Instead of seeking to attain honor or gain honor from others in the group, they're supposed to give it to one another, treating others in, in, in the network of house churches as if they have greater social value than themselves, even if the larger culture puts them in a lower um, station. It is an honor for each of them to be with the other, no matter what uh, someone's social capital account says. And of course, there are just massive, massive social implications for us here um, because we tend to, we all do this. We are all pressed by our world uh, to treat people uh, with the social values that our culture gives to them. Um, certain people are centered and other people are pushed out to the margins, uh, people with disabilities, people of certain ethnicities that, uh, are valued more or less, uh, the whole concept of race, how our culture has been racialized for the last couple hundred years. Um, we as Christian people are to be on the lookout for how society assigns to certain people inferior status and other people superior status. 
And to be Christian is to take the lead, uh, to be treating anybody and everybody as if they have infinite social status, um, especially looking out for people who are marginalized or um, oppressed or excluded, and to be treating them as if they are centered. So being diligent and striving and taking the lead to give honor to people that um, our culture does not honor. Verse 11, he talks about um, without sloth in zeal, fervent in, in spirit, serving the Lord as slaves. And in the context of Romans, serving the Lord as slaves uh, means this is like another metaphorical identity. We are slaves of the Lord who are responsible to the Lord. And in chapter 14, Paul talks about how it is that we, we don't judge other slaves. Um, other people in the Roman network of house churches are sort of fellow slaves of our common Lord. And we're not people who pass judgment. Each person is accountable to the Lord and they'll answer to the Lord. It's not my job to pass judgment. So all of this is highly relevant to what uh, Paul has to say here. Um, it's, it's all highly relevant to um, the social situation in the Roman network of house churches. And um, just want to highlight the final command, which is probably the capstone command, where he talks about pursuing hospitality. And uh, he's going to pick this up again in chapter 15, verse, uh, verses 6 to 8, I think, uh, which, which is really the, the climax or the culmination of this entire letter, where the two groups are to welcome one another, which means they're to, to be practicing warm and welcoming hospitality. Uh, across the lines of difference. Hospitality, which is so central uh, to being Christian, shows up throughout Scripture. Um, yeah, I don't think we... We don't emphasize that enough in our individualized culture, which is which is to our, our loss. So now Paul switches to uh, making some direct exhortations. Uh, he says in verse 14, Bless the ones who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And I've wondered, is he talking about um, the community as a whole here? Is to be how they relate to outsiders who are mistreating the community? Or is this a reference to insults that are received from the other group in the church? Not exactly sure. Uh, either way, the directive is clear. Don't retaliate, but respond with blessing. Um sort of the cycle of violence has to end at some point. This is part of Christian identity is to be in the shape of the cross. We absorb insults. We don't return them. And that takes work because dadgummit, uh, I know my drive for retaliation when I'm wounded, um, but here's where I have to do the work to get my, my, uh, my emotions and my imagination and my mindset into, um, into the new creation reality where retaliation is basically my um, taking a step into the cosmic realm of the present evil age. And when I do that, I will be consumed by the cosmic dynamics that are up and running in the present evil age. But to be a constituent part of the new creation cosmic reality is to absorb insults and to absorb wounds and not return them back. That's tough. Uh they're to rejoice with the ones who are rejoicing and weep with the ones who are weeping. This again is not easy to do. 
especially cross the lines of difference that Paul is talking about here in um, the churches in Rome. But this is genuine solidarity. When 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 folks that um, had been in that group over there, when they have a triumph, rejoice with them. Don't don't get angry and don't feel like you're in competition with them. Enter into their rejoicing. And uh, that is tough to do. That is, it, it's um, when we think about these two exhortations here to rejoice with the ones who are rejoicing and to weep with the ones who are weeping. It is often a lot easier to weep with the ones who are weeping because at, at some point um, you can sort of get relief from that situation and walk away and say something to yourself like, geez, I'm glad that's not happening to me. Um, but sometimes when somebody is enjoying a triumph or has some good news or got promoted or whatever, it's not always easy to enter into somebody else's joy. And, um, but that's genuine solidarity. Genuine solidarity. Um, and also to weep with those who are weeping does take some skill. Um, it does take some skill. I notice here, uh, Paul does not say, um, to those with regard to those who are grieving, um, lecture those who are weeping or, um, cheer up those who are weeping or, um, tell those who are weeping to look on the bright side or give the ones who are weeping a shot in the arm, uh, or motivate the ones who are weeping. No, weep with those who are weeping, grieve with those who are grieving, enter in and have solidarity. And um, for many of us, that's a challenge because what that involves for the most part is being bodily present and saying nothing, which is uncomfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable for some people. Um, I, I know though, looking back on times when people have, um, when we've suffered loss and uh, the things that have been most meaningful to us, and I know the things that I have really treasured, um, are the times when people entered into our grief and just remained silent and were present. Huge. Uh, Paul talks about having the same mindset in verse 16. They're, they're supposed to be thinking the same thing unto one another, be in agreement, have the same mindset, be united in sort of outlook on the community. Um, they may still have differing opinions, but they're supposed to have solidarity with everyone in the community, having the same mindset that the community has to be held together and that every part of it is essential. Not being haughty, not thinking haughty things, but associating with those who are humble, associating with the humble ones or people of low social status. Radical solidarity, which will be costly for some people in the, in the network of Roman house churches. There's probably a handful of people who have some significant social status in those churches. And probably the majority of people are either slaves or um, just nobodies in the eyes of culture. And for those people who have elevated social status, for them to regard everybody else in the group as their siblings and to have solidarity with them would have cost them prospects or uh, prestige or honor. and uh, But that's supposed to be entered into and owned. So every person in the community is to um, own their relationship to everybody else in the community. And even if that's costly with regard to social status. 
again, Paul returns to non-retaliation, verse 17, not repaying evil for, for evil, uh, but looking to the good before all people. So thinking about um, the work that has to be done internally and with regard to um, our position in our social circles, when we pursue non-retaliation, that is very definitely the harder path in social relationships. Uh, I can tell you, it's not easy to do, but that is the way of hope and promise. And to uh, fantasize about retaliation is very clearly the way of death. It's a bad way to go. When you think about retaliation in whatever form that happens, uh, to throw shade at people or to retaliate, return an insult uh, for an, an insult received, um, we have to be thinking in terms of we are stepping into destructive cosmic space. And I think that that's what Paul's getting at in verse 19, where he says, not taking vengeance for yourselves, uh, but give place to wrath. Like, I think what he's getting at is step out of the way of wrath. If you take retaliation on somebody else, um, you're basically putting yourself in the place where wrath could come back and bite you. And that is not good. It can come back and consume you. Um, again, this is thinking in terms of cosmic space. The church inhabits Christ, and outside of Christ, there is just there's wrath as sort of this um, kind of amorphous dynamic that that is out there in present evil age space, and it cannot touch you or consume you um, if you don't engage it. I mean, you could get killed, um, but because new creation space is also resurrection space, the, the Christian hope is the guarantee of resurrection from the dead. Um, but to start stepping into the, the space of wrath by retaliating against other people, um, it could come back on you, likely will come back on you in really, really bad ways. So be careful uh, the steps that you take and be careful about any form of retaliation. It's just not good. Um, that, that is basically stepping into the realm uh, where sin and death reign and you will feel its effects. Um, I don't know how to reckon with that final, uh, picture. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, give a drink to him for doing this. You will heap burning coals upon his head. I still haven't landed on exactly how that metaphor makes sense. Um, but the behavior is clear. Don't retaliate. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think what Paul's saying here is the cosmic battle is real. Don't let the realm of the present evil age overwhelm the Roman network of house churches. Don't behave in that realm uh, you know, through division or through quest for prestige or through um, behaviors and strategies that sort of make sure that your group is ascendant over the other group. Don't shut people out. That is... Engaging in those kind of activities is how you can be sure that the present evil age will, will overwhelm and dominate your community. Um, but do good. Grow into being the community uh, of justice and, and justice doing. And that goodness and that um, practiced and, and strategized way of life characterized by goodness is actually cosmically powerful against the reign of sin and death. So to understand Paul's exhortations, I think it's necessary to always keep in mind his cosmic portrayal of things 
in chapters five through eight. Think, think with Paul in cosmic terms, because that's how he's always thinking. So Romans 12 is the start of um, a number of exhortations where Paul is urging uh, these communities to together be a singular living sacrifice. And this is how they inhabit temple space. This is how they behave as true image bearers and caretakers of creation. Um, and this is how they be a holy people, how they inhabit their sanctified status as God's set-apart people with a unique calling. And that calling is staying together. They're not called to hit spiritual home runs or be super impressive. They're just called to stay together and go to work on the dynamics that are uh, tearing them apart. So for next week, chapter 13. It's cold here in West Michigan, but it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.